0: This morning's Gospel lesson comes from Matthew, uh, verses 18 through 25. The first 17 verses of the Gospel um, are devoted to establishing the genealogy of Joseph from Abraham uh, down to himself, and therefore the genealogy of any child born uh, to Joseph. And in particular, in the middle of that genealogy is establishing... Uh, that Joseph is a descendant of King David, and therefore his sons would also be a descendant of uh, David, in the great hope of the Jewish people looking uh, to the, the, the new descendants of the great King David. And having established his patrilineal descent, Matthew embarks on a story, that calls into question, perhaps, his own fatherhood of Joseph, because in this particular passage, it will be found that uh, Mary is with child. But before Joseph and Mary, having been betrothed to each other, betrothal is like being engaged to be engaged. Right? You've come to an agreement that eventually you'll be engaged and then you'll be married. It's like a three-step process. Many people do that now informally, right? Uh, But in Judaism, it's a formal structure, particularly around the event of uh, there's no premarital sex. Then. Not today. But we're not going there today. (laughs) Then why did you bring it up? I don't know. It just struck me as odd. Why do I do these things? I don't know. Okay. So anyway, don't let me get too much sleep. It's always a bad thing. But Joseph and Mary had not come together. to have marital relations. So this is a big problem, because she's pregnant but ostensibly he's not the father. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. Now his title, Messiah, comes from his Davidic descent. David is the Messiah, the paramount Messiah, but there were many Messiahs. A Messiah was one who was anointed for a particular responsibility, a task undertaking on behalf of God with the people. So to know Jesus as the Messiah is to know him in that great line of those who serve God, and particularly following the example of his ancestor David. Now, when his mother Mary had been engaged, betrothed to Joseph, but before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. The passive construction of that sentence is very um, intentional, subtle, to indicate that her being with child is a product of a power greater than her own or Joseph's own or any human being. Uh, she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, she is a recipient more than an active participant. So she was found to be with child with the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, notice how it refers to him as a husband, despite the fact they are only betrothed at this point, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose Mary to public disgrace, Planned to dismiss her quietly. So Joseph is a righteous person. He obeys the commandments. He fulfills the requirements of the Torah, 636 uh, commandments from Leviticus and Numbers. And he doesn't. He doesn't. He's not going to marry her because you know she's violated the betrothal vows. But he's also a decent human being. He doesn't want to bring her into disrepute or bring her. Uh, to the town square and accuse her of adultery. The punishment of which was being stoned, which happened. You know, it's not just an idea, it was a lived reality. So he's going to dismiss her quietly. Notice this idea of dismissal. In many ancient societies, uh, individuals who were married could be divorced if the man said, I dismiss you. Only the man could do it. And all he had to say was, I dismiss you. Ouch. But he doesn't want to put in a disgrace. But just when Joseph had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, God is revealed to people in the biblical narratives in so many different ways the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, the epiphany, theophany uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai, um, the voice, the spirit of God coming to the, sh- to the uh, prophets and instructing them how to preach and to point out the reality of God's requirements and the obligations of the people of a God who saves and loves them. Then God speaks to people in their dreams. Today, most of us uh, are default attempt to understand dreams is to go to some kind of pseudo-Freudian interpretation, right? Which is hokum. Don't get me going on Freud. God speaks to us in our dreams because we're vulnerable. Our active, rational, managing mind is sleeping. And our unconscious, vulnerable, out of our brain ready to hear and to listen is wide awake. So pay attention to your dreams and forget about all the analysis of your relationship with your parents. Do that somewhere else. My friend has a pillow that she needle pointed. Called on it says, if it's not one thing, it's my mother. <laughs> Again, bashing women. There was a woman who did it. But nevertheless, nevertheless, God speaks to us through our emotions. Never say, but it was only a feeling. Feelings are a primary means by which God communicates to us. Because again, it's that pre-rational, non-systematic way of thinking. It's a way of feeling. So, Joseph has a dream, and he changes his mind. And he's told that the child is a gift from the Holy Spirit, and the child's name will be Jesus. The miracle of the incarnation, Mary's pregnancy, is not a matter of anatomy, physiology, it's not a biological idea or fact, it's a way of God showing God's self to humanity in the fullness of God's love. The incarnation is not a matter of the state of Mary's anatomy, it's a a proclamation of the state of Mary's soul and spirit, heart, her mind, her being. Listen, if God can create the universe coming to Mary and the child being born, it's a piece of cake. So his name will be Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua in the Hebrew means God saves. Yahweh saves. So the child's name will be Jesus. Let me ask you this. How does an infant save anybody? Right? The vulnerability of the baby lies at the heart of what salvation truly means. Listen. The church, all churches, not this church, you know, the church at large in the Western world has made salvation into some kind of cosmic reward and punishment scheme. You know, if you're good, you'll be saved, and you'll go to heaven. And if you're bad, you'll be punished, and you'll go to hell. Now give us some money and you'll be fine. Heaven, hell, are not places. They are states of consciousness. Don't think that's a crazy idea. It was John Paul II who said that. Heaven and hell are states of consciousness. How we see the world, how we feel about ourselves in our relationships with others. So God will save the people, Jesus will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Look, Isaiah said, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Emmanuel, a Hebrew word, God is with us. Now wait a minute, I thought his name was supposed to be Jesus, and now his name is Emmanuel. If that is that his middle name? Or do the two names inform what's really going on here? When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. So if salvation to be saved is an answer to a question that plagues us right what is the question knowing the question is essential to apprehending a meaningful answer in the classroom at the university a student will be sitting in the back row this is before i had my hearing aids The student would ask a question, and I would begin my answer, sometimes perhaps more voluble than I needed to be. And the student would speak when I finished and said, well, yes, but that's not what I asked. (laughs) I said, yeah, but you got an extra thing on it. So, what do we hear depends on what we're looking for. What do we apprehend depends on what is our essential question. And when we think about salvation, if we have allowed ourselves to become entrapped in the Western model of thinking that salvation is being somehow saved from some disastrous fate or from hell, then you're going to ask, come up with an answer which is very different. That the one who saves you will somehow wipe those sins away or pay for your sin. That's the dominant way we think of it in the Western world. Largely in moralistic terms. You're a good person. You help people. You didn't swear on Sunday, whatever it is, right? But is that really what sin is? Sin, it seems to me, all all the maladaptive things that we do, the harm that we cause one another and ourselves, are rooted largely in our shame and uh, fear, in our um, disappointment in our lives and uh, being afraid that other people are out trying to get us, or that we live in a state of uh, uncertainty that anybody will truly, finally love us, that we aren't really worthwhile Um, all these negative images of ourselves and others and the state of the world and the possibility of perfection who's going to be perfect gets us to do all the horrible things that we do that's why Calvin said um, what did Calvin say about Christmas oh everybody gets cold, that's what Calvin said, get it No, never mind. Um, But that's not salvation. That's based on the idea that somehow a price will be paid to save us from punishment. I'd like to suggest that the question about what is, what's wrong? The salvation is to come to a conscious understanding, awareness that you are the object of God's desire, God's love. To be saved is to know that you are the object of God's desire, to become consciously aware of that fact, that you are beloved, because God is with us. This is why Jesus and Emmanuel go together. Jesus saves us from ourselves by digging deep, by becoming this vulnerable babe to let us know that God is with us, is for us, does not abandon us, cares for us, comforts us, heals us, physically, spiritually, emotionally, Loves us. Will never abandon us. The promise that God makes is the promise that God keeps. God never promised to weave a magic circle around our lives and protect us from all trouble. God promised to be with us when the trouble comes. And so that's why... We call him Emmanuel. That's how God saves us. Listen, there's a straight line from the manger to the cross. The cross is powerful, meaningful, salvific, if you want to use a theological term, because of the manger, because it's all a matter of the embodiment of God in human experience, our experience. God's experience in humanity, for you have come to us and shared our common lot, especially when the world abandons us, disowns us, disappoints us, mistreats us, is when God is most fully with us. And so they call him Emmanuel. I don't know if you ever watch some of the Christmas movies. You know, and everybody wants to get a have a perfect Christmas. And everybody gets engaged on Christmas Eve. I don't know what that's all about. Right? Do it some other time. Oh, I get it. Because Mary and Joseph weren't engaged. Okay, they trying to make up for them. The perfect Christmas is not decorations, I love them. It's not the cookies, send them my way. (laughs) Yeah, you you really shouldn't eat Christmas cookies. It's bad for you. You send them to me, I'll take care of them. Uh, It's not you know, this postcard image that we never achieve and therefore feel discouraged and disappointed. The perfect Christmas is coming to the realization that Jesus is aware of you. Let that be your mantra in these closing days of Advent and on the 24th and the 25th and on into the future. Jesus is aware of me, you. For Jesus will save us from our sins against each other and ourselves because he is Emmanuel. Amen.